Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness, and we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. Hi, y'all. This is Reverend Anna Galladay, and we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for us to get our hands dirty. We're ready. Are you? Pastor. Dr. Robin. Happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday. I feel like I feel like this is Groundhog Day. I know, right? We we record, we sleep, we wake up, we record. Yeah. I just I just like hearing your voice uh, multiple <laughs> multiple times throughout the week. It's yeah. a it's a good yeah. thing for me. We've been here before, I feel. We have. We have. <laughs> so, um t- so tell me how your Tuesday's going. What's going on in your world? So, uh woke up rather early for me and decided to take advantage and um start working on a talk that I'm giving around, you know, being transgender and, and writing and how those two things intersect and, and particularly what it means for me to pivot out of sort of dominant academic writing and into more, you know, public sphere writing. And um, so it's a, it's a conference that's, going to be online as everything else is in mid-February. It's as called, is our world, right? Yeah, it's called Writing for Your Life. And and I, I'm just sort of um, telling the story about what it means for me to write for my life um, as nice. a trans Latinx and, and so forth. So that, that's what I've been doing. And then had to, as you know, take a siesta before we recorded because <laughs> – I didn't think, you know, I, I, I sort of, you know, I was in this lane of thinking about being trans and Latinx and all the intersections and then trying to write that story. And then I was like, shit, I can't come on and talk about mutual aid with Dean Spade if I don't rest my fucking eyes. So Right, right. I rested. And, and I, I love that about you. I honor that about you. I, I fully recognize that your need to, you know, reset and regroup is – is vital for your own self-care. And yeah. I love that about you. Um, I also, um, I don't have that capacity. <laughs> mm-hmm. Some days I wish I did. Most days I don't. Most days I'm fine with not having that capacity. But yeah, I wish I, I been, had your energy. I mean, I've been I've been juggling about 18 things this morning. Yeah. Um, you know, one of which, as we talked about on our recent episode, is that, you know, um, a thief has stolen significant amount of money from my checking account. And I am trying right. to fix that problem. Um, and I am trying to not be a snarky bitch about it. And I'm, it's not succeeding. <laughs> I'm, still, I'm a really snarky bitch right now. <laughs> yeah, that sucks. <laughs> it is. It's, it's hard. But um, it is a warm day here in Tennessee for January. Yeah. I don't know how it is for you, but it's almost 70 degrees down here in Chattanooga. 63 degrees here in Nashville, Tennessee. It's crazy. I mean, I I have been bundling up to, you know, to go outside and to walk Ruthie and and 
today I went out with a couple of layers on and I thought I was going to sweat my face off. Yeah. I'm like, okay, okay. I see you, um, climate change. I'm, I'm here for it. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a pretty day and I'm glad to be doing this. And we are really lucky today to be able to have a conversation with Dean Spade. Yes. Um, Dean is among other things, um, uh, a professor at the Seattle University School of Law. And so Dean is going to be joining us from the West Coast, the other coast, the left yep. coast, however you want to term it. Um, but the thing that I mean, we are going to talk to Dean about a, a multitude of things. But uh, one of the things that we are going to dive into, I think, pretty deeply is um, an understanding of mutual aid. Dean has a new book out that was published in October of last year of 2020 called Mutual Aid, Building Solidarity During This Crisis and the Next. And so we are really thrilled to have Dean on the show and to dig into all the things. Yes, yes. Excited for this. Dean Spade, welcome to the Activist Theology Podcast. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. How was your Tuesday? Um, well, it's only 10, 15 a.m. here, so it's <laughs> yeah, mostly involved right? <laughs> in physical therapy exercises and, you know, things like that, but um, but it's good. I had made some barley bread, so buckwheat bread, and I'm eating some of that, so oh, all's yum. well. Yum. So, um, at, you know, as, as, as you may know, we, we try to talk about what's pressing in, in the lives of people. Um, we like to call that pressing social concerns. And I've been following your work since your book, Normal Life, and have really appreciated the ways that you help us all have a broader imagination of um, what counts um, as we think about where the limits of law are. And once again, um, you have invited us into the imagination, um, as you do in all of your work, thinking about um, racial and, and economic justice with with the idea that that many people are talking about these days, which is mutual aid. And and I want us to spend a lot of time talking about that, but I'd like to first, um, start with elements of your story as a queer and trans person that brought you to the place of of how you live your public life through your academic work. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I'll I'll share some things and we can see if it's if it's um, what you're thinking about. Yeah, um, yeah. I was just having a fun conversation before we started with Anna about how we're both from Virginia. Um, I grew up in a, in a rural place in central Virginia with a single mom who was really poor and had dropped out of school in ninth grade and was an immigrant from Canada and come from a long line of poor people. And we were on welfare a lot. And from a very young age, I worked cleaning houses and offices with my sister and my mom and sometimes just with my sister. And 
Um, and so that really shaped my perspective, like seeing my mom's experiences of sexism at jobs and not be able to make a living wage. And, and then when I was around 12, my mom got really sick and she died right before I started high school. And I lived with two different sets of foster parents. And I just ha- was really, you know, <laughs> not into the environment I was living in that was steeped in racism and sexism, you know, just very rural 1980s um, Virginia, the cable TV hadn't come out to where people lived in the county. So we weren't even seeing like the subcultures of the 80s in many ways. It was still just like the way it had been there for a long time. Yeah. Um, you know, my, my school bus was race segregated, white kids yeah. in the front, black kids in the back. I mean, it was just like, I can't even describe how, you know, did, I think a lot of people have a hard time believing that was still happening that recently, but um, it, it was, was. it yeah, was. You know, um, and so, yeah, so I think I was really shaped. I ha- in, in high school, I started to have some awareness around feminism and I, um, you know, just found what I could, um, which was not a lot because, you know, there's not internet and things like that. Um, and this was really eager to get out of foster care and get out of Virginia and left when I was 16 and went to California for a while and then went to New York and whatever, you know, I wanted to go to the big city, like a lot of young queer and trans people do. Um, I didn't have a queer or trans identity before I left Virginia. I hadn't heard of those ideas, those concepts. Um, I think the closest thing I had was a feminist identity and a kind of mad at injustice kind of identity um, that wasn't very well formed yet. I didn't yet have community around that. So I think those things really shaped um, how I came into the the world. And also my mom was a spitfire. She was not an activist. I would not call her an activist. She wasn't a person who had a lot of access to those things, but she was you know, someone who um, spoke her mind. She cursed a lot. She <laughs> smoked and drank a lot. She was not a proper lady. And um, sounds like me. Yeah, she supported a lot of other single mothers. Like they were in a community together and there was a lot of like, okay, someone's got a job interview. Let's all pool our funds, see if that person can have something to wear that looks good. You know, like just a kind of, um, she put a lot, she made a lot of community, um, which I think is, you know, very much help me see that that's how you survive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so then, um, I, you know, a couple more things related to some other stuff you were saying, Robin, about my work and about sort of the critique of law. You know, from a young age, I wanted to change the things I saw going on in the world. And I think I fell into it. A lot of people believe, which is like the way to do that must be to be a lawyer <laughs> because right. we live in a country that tells us that, that it, it tells us a lie about how social change has happened. And that lie is that, um, the big, the big thing that changes lives is laws, is changing right. laws. And that, right. that lie is very much like a, an anti-Black story in the U.S. that says that freedom for Black people came with the Emancipation Proclamation or the Civil Rights Act or, you know, that, that, that these kinds of moments, or the 13th Amendment, that these, that these, and it tells us about social change only really focusing on, like, the men who signed the laws and, like, the big moment and, it re- and charismatic figures. And it, what it hides is the reality that social change happens through, Tons and tons and tons and tons of people who are ordinary, whose whose um, you know names you've never heard, and who were not paid for any of the organizing they were doing, like coordinating together to take care of each other and and take really bold, scary, usually illegal actions against the systems that are harming and extracting, and that's how change happens. And then sometimes some of that is codified in the law, but that's kind of the least important part because laws tend to be about just making the system look good in the face of uprising they they're often not enforced or implemented like we can see how racism was not resolved by any of the laws that have supposedly made it illegal in the u.s so for me there's been this journey i was fortunate to have professors who are critical race theorists when i went to law school i was fortunate to get a scholarship to go to law school which was really important for me obviously yeah um and 
Um, and I, I came to be both interested in directly supporting people who are, you know, in the jaws of law enforcement systems right now and being part of movements that have a much broader imagination than the idea that U.S. colonial racist legal system is going to like somehow be our liberation. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of my work has been about, I appreciate what you were saying at the beginning of the podcast about like writing in a way that a lot of people can read, I hope, and also making a lot of videos and other tools that people can use not just in a classroom environment about these kinds of ideas and putting things I care about like trans liberation in the context of, for example, my opposition to U S military imperialism, like not having the idea, getting out of this absurd idea of those things are separate. So, so, you know, I, I know that Anna and I follow American politics really closely and, um, just to mention one of the concessions that I'm I'm calling what Biden is doing right now concessions. Um, so like the reverse on the transgender ban in the military. Let's just use this as, as an example. You know, there are a lot of people who, who I, I've seen on social media who are saying that is a good thing. But it's can can you walk us through how something like that in in my opinion not only accelerates the war machine, but actually does nothing for trans people. Yeah, I agree with you. This is something I feel like I've been <laughs> harping on for 20 years, right? Because obviously when I came into um, queer activism, it was about don't ask, don't tell. and right. all, you know, It's been the same story. Basically, yeah, the way that I would put it is that um, advocacy for inclusion of excluded groups in the military always turns into pro-war advocacy. It's always like, look, this is this wonderful job that people should be able to have with dignity, doing this important thing, protecting our country, as, which completely erases the reality that, of course, the US, is, U.S. military is the largest source of violence on the planet Earth and the biggest polluter on the planet Earth, and that the job itself is actually a terrible job, right? For most people, it's, you know, there's so much coverage of all the sexual assault in the U.S. military, the racism in the U.S. military, the drug war inside the U.S. military and how it especially targets the same populations that are targeted outside, the fact that vets are abandoned by the VA, that the vet suicide rate is so high. I mean, what the U.S. military does is unconscionable and the people who are made to do it um, suffer greatly. And it's not at all my idea of a, of a liberation focused on trans well-being. It would never be about getting us that job. But right. the um, So I feel like it's a very frustrating, typical, limited story about quote-unquote equality, that what it means to be liberated is just to join the war machine, join the extraction machine, like trans people being cops, oil drillers, you know, um, soldiers, like this is, this is not my prosecutors. This is not my idea of our liberation. I think our liberation is deeply tied to, um, to actual well-being of trans people who are also criminalized people who are also people who the U S makes war on, you know, et cetera, who are also people who are and already suffering from climate change. And I think that there's just this kind of like really limited, frustrating kind of liberal imagination that just says we have to embrace all the existing institutions and just try to get a piece of that pie, whether that's to get married and the typical sort of same-sex marriage fight that's been so visible um, in LGBT politics during our lifetimes, or whether that's about serving in the military or becoming a cop. Um, so yeah, so I think that I, um, it's very important to me to be outspoken against military inclusion campaigns and to see them as not actually for the well-being of trans people, but for the well-being of recuperating institutions that are illegitimate, people can see as illegitimate. One of the ways those institutions try to make themselves legitimate is by including hated groups and stealing our liberation struggles message. So you see this right now with Biden's appointments, right? He's appointing all these people of color who are like right. war profiteers, who are oil and gas industry people. Like, 
it doesn't I, like that is not liberation. That is not anti-racism. That is not anti-colonialism. Like it doesn't matter if it's a woman or a person of color or a trans person. If that person is representing the destruction of all of us, that is, you know, so it's just this very like sort of cheap tactic that's also yeah. being used. You know, they're going to point a black police chief whenever there's um, a controversy over anti-black violence in right. the city, all those things. So I think we just, we see this and yet it still does work on people, <laughs> you know? And so I think we have a lot, um, a lot of work to do to have, to, to deepen all of our shared discernment, which partly means just becoming more intersectional in our analysis. Like that only makes sense if you're imagining a trans politics that doesn't care about what war does or that doesn't right. care about vets. I mean, like, it doesn't care about soldiers, all of those things. It doesn't care about racism. Like, and so that kind of like, um, single issue or narrowing of our political field really undermines what it would be to shape fights that actually benefit us. Yeah. You know, um, I, I love thinking with people around how to make our lives more sustainable and and not just sustainable but how do we flourish and and one of the things that that you've really been doing is helping us all think about liberation in in a in a very in very broad terms can you can you help us understand and connect the dots why things like voting Democrat or the discourse on equality or the logic of inclusion, how those um, practices um, don't get to the logic of liberation? I, I think about this in terms of um, those practices and those um, sort of um, hints at diversity, for lack of a better term, um, doesn't make a profound break with the dominant system. And so it actually inhibits liberation. And, and I'm wondering if you could help us and, and help our listeners think about um, what, how and why voting Democrat even though sometimes it's always choosing the better of two evils, um, how how we how we get conscripted into these practices that that th we think they're good, but 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 they actually inhibit liberation. Yeah, um, I mean. So, so many things. One, one frame I think about for this is that they are actually demobilizing tactics. So mm -hmm. what it is, is it's telling us that is sufficient. And I, I think specifically with electoral politics at the federal level, it's like a celebrity sideshow. It's like the thing that's really far from something that we could have like a meaningful interaction with. All we can do is this vote, which is like kind of an extremely thin relationship to the thing. Even your local electoral politics, you can have a thicker relationship to, right? Like you could yeah. actually make a bigger impact. And, and then, I mean, also just the fact that we are told politics happens only through elections is about keeping us all in our places as opposed to all the other ways we can be politically engaged. It's, it's, it, these are truly demobilizing um, frameworks. And I think that, you know, I think the whole story that law and politicians are the way to make change is to 
rob us of the realities that ordinary people outnumber those, you know, poor people outnumber rich people, ordinary people outnumber um, elites, um, you know, uh, people of color outnumber white people on the globe, like all, you know, all of the, like the extraction process requires these forms of governance where these very small numbers of people determine things for everyone and do that mainly focused on extracting for a profit. So, so it really like, I think that that's, um, you know, that's so much why I wrote the book about mutual aid and why I've been, especially since Trump was elected, I've been really focused on popularizing ideas about mutual aid. Obviously I've been involved in mutual aid my whole life as have most people who are in social movements. But what I noticed when Trump was elected in 2016 was that so many people were angry and scared rightly. And they were, I thought like really newly mobilizable, like a whole new set of people were like, Oh no, this is really bad. And I'm mad about something related to it. And instead, or I'm worried and scared for myself and people I love. And instead of um, finding out how to get directly involved in something that would make a difference. Most people were being told like, oh, donate to the ACLU or Planned Parenthood, wait for the next election and vote, maybe post something on social media that just people in your own little silo will see. It doesn't, you know, doesn't actually change much. I mean, it's not that circulating ideas isn't great, but it's not sufficient, right? And yeah. so I wanted, and I, I really, what I really saw happening was this same story where we're told like the people at the, at the big nonprofits are going to fix it for us or, you know, the right judges will fix it for us or, like the officials and um and what you know the reality is as somebody who studied social movements my whole adult life is that um change comes from lots and lots of people organizing together and helping each other survive and mutual aid is usually is the is the typical on-ramp for most people into social movements so the way people get into social movements most commonly is that they're just trying to address the immediate crises with each other and talking together about how what caused this crisis and thinking about how to get to the root causes together. So there, you know, the classic example people talk about a lot in the U S is the black Panther party's free breakfast program, right? right? Like let's get together and feed children and talk about the impacts of what it's like to not have enough food and say, you know what, it's not your fault that your family is poor and you can't feed your kids. It's actually happening to the whole black community because of targeted racism that, you know, is rooted in slavery and we need, um, black liberation, um, you know, and that is a, that kind of, the ways that mutually that's been the case in, you know, all the social movements you can think of is that people are meeting each other's direct needs and then building a shared political analysis and moving with that. And so if we keep people from doing mutual aid and instead have them just click on stuff online or just donate once in a while or just vote, um, we're keeping people atomized, isolated from each other and unlikely to build collective action, which is actually the thing that gets the goods that, that wins the change. And so, that is, you know, part of what I wanted to talk about, um, you know, the last, last four years, especially when we made a movie about mutual aid and did other things. And then I wrote this book most recently. But um, part of what I want to address, too, that I think might come up for a lot of people who are um, listening to this is that one thing we get told is that the the smaller demand is more pragmatic. We're told like, well, it's ridiculous to think about ending U.S. military imperialism. Trans people should just get a job in the military or it's absurd right. to think about abolishing prisons. We should just try to get cops not to do these chokeholds or something. And that story that, that tells us that's pragmatic is actually incorrect. It is incorrect because what it yields is reforms that, that strengthen the existing systems and don't have um, sufficient material relief for the people in harm's way. What we want is change that actually gets the people who are suffering the worst. And all those kinds of like easier to pass, more palatable Democratic Party can swallow it reforms are always like ineffective. That's why they're the ones that are palatable to people who work for oil and gas and the military. Um, so I think the key thing here is like to change our idea of what is pragmatic. The most pragmatic thing is to win stuff that actually works for our communities. And that is, um, 
we have to kind of take back that idea. And one more thing I'll say about this too that's been really useful for me is just to see, you know, we're supposed to be so excited about Kamala Harris because she's the first black woman, Asian vice president, all these things. She, you know, but really it's like she's a former prosecutor who prosecuted thousands and thousands of people who are still in prison. Like the idea that the Democratic, you know, and we're supposed to be excited that that Biden-Harris will bring back Obama's policies. But Obama deported more people than any president right. ever has on earth. And right. he, his, his country imprisoned more people than any country ever has on earth. And he supported um, troop surges in Afghanistan and all kinds of other terrible warfare all over the globe. Like, we have to talk about how the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are like two degrees away from each other. They're both military imperialist parties. They're both working for oil and gas. They're both ultimately for the kind of law and order that has led to us to have the world's pr- biggest prison system. So I think it's just essential for us to like, you know, of course, try to push and influence them. But the way that you, the way that you move any politics is by, is by building a grassroots support with a really big demand, not just by writing like a friendly letter to the people who currently are in the elite positions and saying, please consider our position. Like it's, they only move when they are threatened by giant movements. And we saw that this summer with the protest against police violence and racism, that the only reason any of these politicians ever get any talking points or consider any transformation around this is because there's a huge movement. The only reason um, Obama ever started talking about income inequality and wealth inequality was because of the Occupy movement. Like, it is social movements from the bottom that have big visionary demands for what we actually want that make the transformation, not kind of all of us trying to play the game and hope the Democratic Party will do the right thing eventually. Yeah, I love that you I love that you name kind of this close the close proximity to our two predominant political parties and how how close they really are in 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 so many ways. I mean, you know, we've had action for the last, you know, t- t- 5 days, 7 days from the Biden administration that really just becomes a, you know, what aboutism conversation. Um, you know, everything that that needed that was you know done horrifically um in the in the Trump administration you know Biden has come back and said you know well what about and has you know written an executive order and 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 it has quote unquote solved it or fixed it or mitigated it temporarily when we all know that that that, that isn't exactly that isn't what's happening at all um I think when I think of this understanding of mutual aid and how it's directly related to our, or how it can be directly related to social movements that impact public policy, you mentioned that, you know, in many cases, it is local government. It is our, our local civic engagement that can be the the catalyst for really seeing the tactic of mutual aid um, have have success and have and have a, a a means by which it it changes the tenor of things can you unpack that a little bit more I mean we've talked a lot with our listeners you know back previous to the elections about how it was as important if not more important that they engage in their their local ballot, their down ballot issues, um, as it was that they decide who they wanted the next, you know, president and vice president to be. Um, and, and we can say that, but I think y- your understanding and the way that you are able to craft this um, plea or, or um, uh, need for mutual aid really does become 
critical as you look at our local communities and as we look at the ways that mutual aid can change the things that are literally affecting us as we drive around or walk around our streets. A lot of concerns about local politics, right? Like in, in Seattle, it's usually a bunch of millionaires running for mayor, just to be real. I mean, that's the way it is most places. And in Seattle, where I followed most closely, although I'm following it all over the fight to defund the police, sure. you know, you see that our city council and mayor are run by the Chamber of Commerce. I mean, it is the the rich people run politics everywhere or like Amazon or Walmart or whoever wants, whoever's got big interest in your community or the the local fracking project or the, you know, whatever it is, you know, they, it is actually very hard, even at the most local level without direct action and turning up the heat politically to get anything we want. So I, I also just want to say, like, I really am arguing for social movements that do not center electoral top politics, but instead sure. use it strategically when it makes sense. Sure, absolutely. And within that, I absolutely agree with you guys that get that the, um, the place where we are likely to have the most impact on all levels is at the most local level. So if we're mad about racism, we should be mad at, we should be like getting involved in food justice projects in our town or supporting, defending the encampment of people who are unhoused um, or, you know, supporting, trying to get people out of the detention center in our town or, you know, figuring out what's going on with trying to get people out of prison who, you know, so that people aren't getting COVID, dying COVID in prison in our County, in our state, you know, there's so many fights to get involved in, but I think that in general, electoral politics is passive. Like mostly it doesn't, it, it's, it's, it's some of the most, pa- I mean, it, fundamentally it says like, let's elect this person and hope they still do what they said they would do when they get there. Right. And, and, and actually none of them are going to do anything we want them to do, no matter who they are, unless we hold their feet to the fire. Like you can't believe it because the system is designed to retain um, the status quo and it's designed in like so many deep ways. So that's why I think, yes, people should absolutely know what is going on in their own towns. The fact that most people in Seattle don't follow the budget fight, you know, that it's kind of done in this technocratic way that makes it inaccessible to a lot of people means that it's really hard to get our big demands to be, um, to play out on the ground. And I think in general, we've seen this with the, with the, you know, the, the, the movement around, um, uh, defunding police around the country uh, this summer, I think a lot of people heard their city and county council members stand up and say, oh, yes, we're going to cut the police budgets. And then they went on to not do it. And no right. one noticed because we are told to de-skill ourselves about actually following through and being in their faces and watching everything they do closely. And, you know, who is doing that is the business interests and the, you know, oil and gas interests, et cetera. So we, right. we need to build our capacity to, um, to, to sort of force them to do even the things they've said they would do, much less things they haven't yet said they would do that they should do. Um, but I think at the same time, so, so I, what I guess what I'm saying is like, I want us all to have robust political lives where we are deeply involved in mutual aid and direct action projects that are like right now, like trying to address the crises that are happening with an awareness of who caused these crises, you know? And then I also want us to, as part of that, of course, be doing damage control about the horrible things electoral politicians are doing, um, you know, in our towns and that companies and um, business interests are doing. And so I think it's a, it's a, um, and overall I would say that I, to me, it's like, electoral politics has to be decentered and the local mm-hmm. level is the is the most important level. One more thing I want to say about Democrats and Republicans, like one way I've heard it talked about is that they have identical programs except for these few sideshow issues. Like a few issues like sort of stoke the moral fires, abortion, mm-hmm. queer and trans people, whatever. Not that I mean I care a lot about abortion and queer and trans people, but but those few issues 
are um, are used to make us think they're different and to get us all riled up on these kind of moral claims, um, where meanwhile, like the bulk of their program is identical. And that was really helpful to me, that reframing, because and it has been identical, you know, throughout American history, they've both been doing the same thing. Um, and so I think that's a kind of useful um, reframe. Yeah, that's great. Uh, you know, when, um, when we occupied or when we w- uh, went to the streets in uh, May of last year, when George Floyd was murdered, and, and our, uh, our local, um, you know, black activists and, and community organizers here in Chattanooga led us into that work. Um, come June, we got a lot of pushback from a lot of people saying, well, like the officers were like, you're fighting for officers to be arrested in Minneapolis. Like they're in jail now. Go back, go home, go back, go back to, you know, go back to your work, get out of the streets. Um, but at that point we had the ear of our city council. We had the ear of our mayor. Um, and so we kept going for that exact reason, because there were, there were things that needed to be talked about locally. And, and what, and we, while we might have, you know, temporarily used the outrage and the and the violence that was occurring in other cities as our catalyst to move people to to action. We then, you know, kind of catalyzed that action into a conversation that had hundreds and hundreds of people showing up every other week at our city council meetings online, when usually there were one or two people showing up to, you know, to, to talk about things that were of, of concern for, you know, what was going on in the community. And so, um, you know, while, while there are horrible things happening in, in cities like mid-sized cities like Chattanooga all the time, I mean, that's a, that's a perfect example of how, you know, you use the social movement that that comes after the outrage to then continue to have the ear of the people that, you know, are, are capable of making the decisions. Yeah. And I think that also just that classic misunderstanding of what it was you all were in the streets about, like, we're not in the streets to get other right. people put in jail, right? Like, right. I, I just to be clear, like, I, I don't understand this movement is about being prosecuting particular officers or getting them arrested or fired. The Correct. point of it is to, you know, most of us have a city budget and a county budget that is more than 50% police and law enforcement of some yes. kind. We want to have, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of people in Chattanooga who do not have adequate housing, heat, food, childcare, et Correct. cetera. So what we really want is people's well-being to be guaranteed and secure and to not have any of this money that we all worked for and paid in taxes spent to create a military force that, that is terrorizing particular people in our communities, particular parts of our communities. And that is a is a much bigger idea and it's it's very typical kind of like liberal stuff to be like oh this is just about refining the police force by getting rid of the bad apples like they wish it was just about that but it is about right. something much deeper right and i think the the concern became greater once they realized that we weren't going to be quiet and that our conversations were quickly shifting from police reform to the way that all budget monies were being spent and you know and and that's where that's where you might have the the capacity to push the rock up the hill, even just a, you know, a millimeter uh, to, you know, to get some, some mobilization and some change to happen. I'll say one more thing about that too. So I will also say that in addition to studying social movements, I, I also study like systems of poor relief and welfare. And one of the things that's very, very clear to me is that, you know, I think it's unjust that they tax us and then spend all of our money giving tax cuts to different, you know, polluters in our towns and um, spending it on the police and the military. Um, 
But I also, while I am pushing in Seattle to, to move the, that police money towards, um, you know, childcare and healthcare and all things we need, housing, especially housing, it's so bad here. Um, I also don't actually believe that the U.S. government or any of the local governments are ever going to give out the things we need in a way that isn't racist, ableist, sexist, uh. transphobic, because that is how all social welfare programs have been implemented in U.S. history. They are always excluding a set of stigmatized people who are cast as the undeserving poor. That is the history of what government relief for poverty looks like, and especially in a country that's founded in slavery and um, colonialism. So one of the things that, one of the reasons mutual aid is so important to me is that it's not about just trying to get the government to do it right. It's about us all providing for each other and saving ourselves. And you especially see this in the context of disaster, right? Like that whenever there's the fire, the flood, the storm, um, FEMA shows up late, if ever, they mostly send in military and cops to be shooting people and hurting people. They are letting people drown. They're letting people breathe the smoke. And that when they do offer relief, it'll be like only for people who had an address or they'll offer like after Hurricane Sandy in New York, they mostly offered loans. They offered homeowners loans. Like the last thing you need when you just lost your house to a hurricane is a loan. You need mm-hmm. a grant, you know? And so right. we know we know that they can't. And then, you know, they. I'm thinking also right now about the fires in California a few years ago. It's like they end up just trying to like sweep people who've been displaced out of the Walmart parking lot. Like they're just... They're not, you know, people who have nowhere to go, people who didn't own a house before the fire, you know, and who are not eligible for FEMA relief. You see this everywhere. So what you see is that the people's relief system, like people actually supporting each other, is what is what ends up being there for people who are excluded from the like crappy too late relief that was maybe offered by the government because the government's mostly offering people like here I'm going to shoot you if you don't move off this bridge or whatever, right? And so. One of the things I think we need to think about is how what we're trying to build right now, and we are facing an ecological crisis that is existential, and I think that should be very clear. There's news news headlines today about the loss of um, of ice, right? That's just so hard to even comprehend how extreme this, these changes are. What we're facing is a time when there's just going to be more storms, more fires, more floods, more droughts, more blackouts, more devolving of the... Um, of the basics that we've kind of basic infrastructure we've expected or that some people have relied on. Right. And we're going to see at the same time. And we see this, there's a really great book by Todd Miller called storming the wall. That's all about how the response of the U S government to climate crisis has simultaneously been denial and building up like department of Homeland security resources to actually like contain and police us all and police um, climate refugees um, as this, this crisis mounts. So they're going to respond with guns and tanks and, and all that. They're not going to respond with like bottles of water. And so we have to like, it, it, it matters right now that we actually figure out collective liberation centered care for one another. And part of that is just stuff like who around me in my, on my block or on my, rural road has a medical device that if there's no power, they right. are in danger. And who on right. my block has a battery that works that's solar that, you know, like just basically knowing who's around us. I think all the time about how this really amazing organizing group in New York cab that organizes in Chinatown, they had been organizing in Chinatown for so long that when Hurricane Sandy came, and there was no electricity and no water, they knew where there were different elders on high floors of apartment buildings who weren't going to be able to get down because the elevators were out. And they could, they went, they, it saved the, their lives. The fact that they'd already knew those people saved those people from being thirsty in their apartments, right? And that, um, 
that's why it's so essential that we be doing mutual aid right now that builds our relationships, that builds our capacity to meet each other's immediate needs, that helps us learn the skills that we get out of that, like how to make a schedule together, how to deal with conflict in our group, how to not leave people out because we don't like them, how, you know, all these, you know, very basic um values about how we share, how we reconnect because capitalism, colonialism, racism, all these things have really separated us and made us think like I'm my own unit and I just have to worry about my food and my housing and like other people who don't have it, there's something wrong with them or it's none of my business or they should be ashamed or whatever it is, right? Like how do we heal that um, through practice because that's the only way we're going to do it so that we can actually be more prepared for these crises that are coming and the ways that our governments are going to make these crises worse. So I'm just saying all this to say, like, I want, I'm, I'm behind these efforts to get us more COVID relief money or to, you know, move the, the, the city cop budget into housing. But I also don't have faith that they'll ever do it right. And if they do do it right, it'll only be because we're pressuring them so hard and because we're doing it right in community and setting up the model of what that is. So it's like, it's not about, I'm just, it's all a way, it's like the opposite of passivity here. It's like, let's invent the world we actually want to live in and make it happen. And it would be absurd to wait around and expect the government to invent that world because that's not what this government was founded for. So I want to, I want to bring in sort of the angle of religion, because I know that not only am I trained as a theologian and ethicist, and Anna is a pastor, and we've got a lot of Christian folk who listen to our podcast. And I feel very curious about the ways in which um, empire religion, fundamentalist Christianity, and things like the Protestant work ethic actually accelerates the very things that you're talking about. And I'm wondering if you've thought about those intersections very much and if you have any thoughts about it. Yeah, I mean, I think there's really two two sides to this coin for me. The one side is, is just what you're saying, right? Like that um, major religions have been, you know, part have been sources of authoritarian control over people and still are, right? And that they... Um, there's a lot of ways in which people are trained to be disempowered, to worship authority, to hate themselves and doubt themselves and not, you know, uh, not, ha- not take collective action, and, you know, and also then specific like sexist and homophobic and racist. And, you know, I think about the Catholic church's history of slavery and all, you know, so many yeah. things. Um, and um, I'm Jewish. And so I also obviously can see, um, you know, like for me, I'm a, you know, I, I care a lot about the fact that um, my own people's, experiences of oppression are now used to justify apartheid in Israel right. and Palestine. Like that, you know, so I care a lot about that thing. The other side of the coin, too, is that a lot of people, communities of faith are where they have actually experienced care and, um, and somebody visit you in the hospital and somebody bring you soup and yes. people come help you with the funeral. Like a lot, like, so I think it's also useful for me when I'm talking to uh, my you know, relatives and friends who've are thinking about this stuff for the first time to be like, okay, wouldn't it be great if everybody had that kind of accompaniment? Why don't we? And a lot of people are like, oh yeah, in my grandparents' time, it was more like this or that. People can see, oh yeah, we used to grow our own food. Oh yeah, we used to have these or those ways of supporting community. And some of those included terrible patriarchal norms or really racist segregationist ideas or whatever. So we're not about talking about going backwards, but we might be talking about which practices keep us safe and well 
that aren't based in police or militaries or capitalist extraction? And what are the ways we become separated from each other? And when did you feel supported? And when did you enjoy, even though it was hard or tedious work, when did you enjoy supporting others? And, and what was that like, you know, like, so just kind of, can we, can we reach into that? And the other thing I'll say about this too, kind of on a more spiritual level, we were just talking about this in one of my classes yesterday. I had asked my students, we were reading, this wonderful book called Our Enemies in Blue. It's a history of policing in the United States. And and I was saying to them, you know, I know it's hard to read this stuff and there's some really hard accounts of police um, violence. How do you guys take care of yourselves when you're reading this? And one person brought up um, a kind of spiritual frame and how they will talk to their spiritual advisor when they're reading this stuff. And it just, is, you know, it gives you a crisis of faith, faith when you're learning about policing or slavery yeah. or colonialism. You're like, oh my God, how could this have happened? Is the world an okay place if this is what has run it for 500 years? Like, how do I kind of go on when this is so much bigger than me? And I, I really appreciate that my student brought that up. And one of the things I said back to my students is like, whether or not they are people who identify as spiritual, connecting with the the broadness, the hugeness of human resistance to injustice is so helpful when you feel overwhelmed by how could I in my life possibly change us? No one of us can possibly change these really intense conditions. And it's a, you know, not good fantasy to think we can. That's kind of turns into saviorism or whatever. But instead to be like, oh, I can rest in the fact that I am not alone. There are, you know, all these beautiful histories of people and people I don't know all around the world also resisting these conditions in creative ways. I can look for their stories and get inspired by them and enjoy their humor or be amazed by the scale of what they tried or what they won um, or the art in it or the spiritual message in it or the music in it. And like that piece around, for me, that's a spiritual practice. Like in the same way, I also use the spiritual practice of feeling like how much the planet itself supports me when I just feel overwhelmed or like at my, at my wits end or, or unsupported in the moment, I'm just like, I'm just getting this good air right now. I'm just getting this yeah. food. I'm, you know, just remembering that we all belong here and that this, we are part of this. And so for me, both thinking about social movements that way as that deep, broad support system that we all belong in and are part of, and also thinking about um, the planet itself um, I feel like, you know, those kinds of practices are, are important when you are facing what we are all facing, which is just way beyond comprehension, both the, the suffering and injustice and the, the kind of the stakes right now, to be honest. I mean, it is just the stakes are so high and we, the people in charge, the, the elites in charge are completely inadequately prepared and not about to do anything useful. So we, it's, it's on us and that's beautiful and like creative and hopefully collaborative and all those things. And it, it can be overwhelming. And I think those are moments when we need to remember, like it's, it's always been on us and people have, you know, there's a kind of common phrase around mutual aid, like we're all we've got, we're all we need. Um, and I, I find that really comforting. Yeah. I love that. Thank you. Yeah. Well, Dean, I am so grateful that you chose to share this hour with us, that you were, um, you know, willing to come and kind of help us unpack this understanding. I mean, I think a lot of our listeners and, and I know Robin and I are personally, you know, really do believe that it is community. It is our, it is our capacity for community and our capacity to be um, there for one another, both in physical and, um, you know, emotional and in some cases, spiritual ways that will allow us to survive um, and will move us towards liberation. Um, 
thank you for kind of giving us a framework and, and as we say, helping connect the dots between, uh, you know, what we, what we can find as, as hopeful and possible and where we quite frankly shouldn't be looking for, um, you know, for ways to, to move into a space that, that helps build that community even further. Um, I know I'm grateful that you were with us. Um, I'm sure Robin will echo the same. Um, I would love for you to share a little bit with our listeners about how they can find you, how they can find um, this amazing book on mutual aid that you just put out last year. Um, tell our folks a little bit about where they can be in touch with you and how they can how they can support you. Thanks. Yeah. Um, I have a website, deanspade.net, that's got a lot of my writing on it and also videos I made and stuff that's free. That might be an easy place to start. Um, I also am on Twitter as Dean Spade and Instagram. I think it's spade.dean um, and Facebook is Dean Spade. And um, yeah, this book was put out by Verso, but I think it's sold by lots of lots of bookstores and I'd recommend buy it from your local independent bookstore if you can. Um, and yeah, I was really glad to be here with you all. And I look forward to uh, hearing your future episodes as well. Thanks so much, Dean, for being here. It's it's really great to think not only with another trans person, but also someone who comes from a different yes. religious and spiritual tradition than me. Um, just really grateful for the the ways in which you point us toward the the historical global resistance that often gets whitewashed by governments and and the dominant religious tradition and so thank you so much for being here I'm really I'm really excited to get this one out thank you all right, friends, uh, we will see you again next week. Again, we encourage you to follow us at Activist Theology. Don't forget that activists and theology share a T. And you can find other ways to contact us in the show notes. Um, we encourage you to um, rate the podcast, give us five stars, let us know you love us, uh, reach out to us on Twitter, and share this episode and all the others with your friends. Dr. Robin, until next week. Let's get free. Are you looking to connect the dots between what you think and how you live? Are you looking for a more robust way to be in solidarity with the movement? Are you looking to get your hands dirty with the work of social justice? Join Dr. Robin and Reverend Anna Galladay each week as they share, reflect, and analyze on pressing social concerns. Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.kindful.com and click on podcast. And remember, activist and theology share a T. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by our friends Delta Ray. Our sound editor and engineer is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds. <laughs>